Welcome to the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast and uh, for another of the uh, uh, greats of classical or ancient Greece and Rome. And uh, we've come to the uh, end of this series, at least. The last one that we're going to be talking about is uh, Quintilian, the master teacher, you could say. Uh, and uh, again, joining me today is uh, Dr. Richard Enos. Um, and uh, Quintilian, you could say, is... If uh, Cicero was uh, the apex of Roman rhetoric as it was performed, uh, Quintilian may be the greatest master of teaching it on to others. What would you say? Well, first, um, I want to say hello, and I wish everyone um, a very happy holiday season. And I would like uh, to respond to say that I not only agree, but I hope to explain why I agree in three different ways. Uh, first is just a little bit about Quintilian himself. And then the second part would be about his monumental work, the Institutes of Oratory, Institutio Oratoria. And then the third, the consequences. What happened as we move from the classical period, ancient rhetoric, and into the Middle Ages, and then just opening up into the rediscovery of so many of these classical works, the Renaissance. And I hope that will be an extended answer to your very important question about the contributions of Quintilian. Mm. And uh, perhaps uh, should we do a little bit of a bridge first from Cicero as far as uh, the uh, kind of where we're at now? So, Sure. Well, last time we discussed Cicero, who uh, was famous in the Roman Republic, not only because of his oratorical ability, some consider him, many consider him the greatest Roman orator and a rival even to Demosthenes in classical Greece. But also he was a great rhetorician, and by that I mean in the distinction between rhetor or orator and rhetorician is that he was um, a theoretician of rhetoric. He wrote many treatises collectively called the rhetorica that instantiated um, his views on rhetoric. Most people don't realize that even Cicero did a little bit of teaching. He taught Hertius and Panza who were famous at the time, but really his teaching was um, individual and occasional. Now, um, Cicero, as we know, died uh, uh, about approximately on December, well, December 7th, 43 BCE. And then, <clears throat> and when he died, the political forces were set in motion so that Rome was moving from a republic to an empire. And by that, I mean that the political institutions for leadership where ability and rhetoric was such a source of power, as we discussed last time, were transforming. It wasn't that they went away, but rhetoric became very clearly entrenched as essential to the education of people in the Roman Empire. And it did remain a source of power. It just was um, a somewhat different one. It still had some political sway, but obviously 
the idea of being educated, informed, and articulate qualities necessary for leadership were uh, solidified. And what we're talking about today is that the work of Quintilian, who came uh, later than Cicero, Cicero, as I said, died around 43, and Quintilian was born in 35 AD, or uh, in the Common Era, CE, and he may have lived to about 100 uh, CE. Some people believe that the Institutes of Oratory, the culmination of his work, uh, and a lifetime of experiences as a teacher was done about 95, 95 CE. And uh, I would like to just give a little bit of background on Quintilian and to understand how he came to write this work and why he is regarded as you correctly said, really the patron of educators. A Quintilian was born in Spain. This wasn't uncommon. He was a Roman citizen. Um, he was born in a city that is in Latin would be call, uh, called Caligaris or Calahora. Maybe today would be better, closer to that. And it still exists. And in the city, there is a statue dedicated to him, dedicated to Quintilian. He uh, had a career early on as an advocate and a fairly successful one, but he moved to teaching and he moved to Rome and he established himself early on as an excellent educator, so much and so that he became one of the teachers of the imperial families of Rome. Now, all of us know of the chaos that existed with the later emperors, there was one year where they called the year of the four emperors. That's how quickly things were changing. But it's a testimony, I think, to Quintilian that he continued to be the educator of imperial families through all of this chaos. And under um, the emperor, I believe it was, there was this ferocious desire to receive the first endowed chair of rhetoric at Rome. Now, there had been other endowed chairs, both municipal, citywide. Uh, Athens is a good example of that. But he began the tradition of imperial chairs in, in Rome. And the emperors did endow imperial chairs in other cities. But of course, this was a tremendous honor for Quintilian. When he retired from teaching, he decided that it would be a good idea to write down what he was teaching for posterity. And he did this in 12 books. Some people believe that the culmination of it, the 12th book, is really a testimony to his view of the important role that rhetoric played in leadership, in civic leadership. And there is a famous phrase that occurs very early on in the beginning of that 12th book, the final book, where Quintilian talks about the we're bonus here, the good man, uh, speaking, dikendai, 
peritus, speaking well. And we will remember from our past conversations of how that resonates so much in such harmony with the views of Isocrates, how Cicero, influenced by Isocrates, saw that as an important criterion for Roman rhetoric. And here with Quintilian, we see that as not only the culmination of his view of what education should produce, responsible, articulate, morally uh, conscious individuals who can provide leadership so essential to the, to the community. And so Quintilian established a ratio or a system of education, the 12 books, with rhetoric as the culmination and consequence of that education. So, and um, <clears throat> he's, uh, he comes across, uh, I, for, me, for me at least, as a quite, um, a quite a sympathetic fellow. He's, he never kind of, uh, tr I don't know, he never brags about his, uh, it seems like he brags about his accomplishments. He uh, opposed capital punishment for children and said that that was a, that was a bad idea, that uh, they shouldn't be moved by fear but by love. Corporal punishment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not capital punishment. <laughs> Corporal punishment. There we go. <laughs> he yes. would oppose capital. He would, as oppo well. he would oppose that too. That's true. Yeah, oppose to corporal punishment for children. They should be moved by by love rather than by fear. Um, yes. He lost two of his sons, I believe, also. Uh, well, they they died before he did, uh, and so you can kind of sense the so, uh, certain uh, tenderness when he describes children and the growth of children and how to kind of watch over them and to um, to give them the best education and the best uh, upbringing to become upstanding citizens, to become the, the good man speaking well. Uh, and uh, has also a catalog of quite uh, famous students. We think uh, Suetonius, right? That's one of them. Uh, likely or possibly also Tacitus. Um, uh, Pliny was uh, one of his students, the historian. Yes. And, um, you know, I think that um, if you want to see uh, and get a peek at, I guess, the insights of Quintilian as a person, in the very beginning of book six, book six, he has a short introduction where he laments what was then the recent loss of his son. His wife died very young. And, um, when you read this testimony, in fact, he even says that it's, it will be hard for him to go on with this work, the institutes, after the, the loss of his son. But he does, of course, as we know. But you can begin to see how much he cares about education and youth. I think, I've, I've been trying to think if there's anyone that we can identify with currently. And I, um, in America, and they recently made a movie about this. Uh, Fred Rogers was a person who was a minister and devoted to helping people. And he was so caring and tender and sincere that it was disarming. And Quintilian is a person who reminds me 
of Rogers. And uh, I think the name of the movie, It's a Wonderful Day in the Neighborhood, or, mm-hmm. right. or which was his expression. And uh, he may not be familiar to some of our other listeners, but if, they, if, but if they do know him, they'll have a sense of a similarity with, as you said, this kind of tenderness and sincerity that, and honesty that comes through with Quintilian, which probably is why he was so endeared. And, uh, you know, he came uh, to Rome uh, as part of the entourage, you could say, of, uh, of Galba, uh, but Galba didn't last, but uh, Quintilian did. Um, and uh, even though, you know, very often it was the case that if you were a part of the party of a emperor that became deposed, uh, you were killed or exiled. Uh, but uh, evidently, they saw the sex, uh, successive em- emperors saw him as uh, this uh, resource and this educator that they needed to have. Uh, and that was a, a kind of a, a treasure to Rome to have him. Yeah, and I think that came across so well. And it's a testimony to uh, how the political wranglings that went on in the quest and lust for power were um, were overcome, that they transcended. the. I mean, the Quintilian's work transcended those wranglings. And I thought what well, we could do is I just isolated a few of what I think are the most important features of education that illustrate his his uh, notion of the development of the person leading to the service of the community, the service of the state. And we'll see how much this is in harmony, not only with Isocrates, but especially with Cicero. And uh, uh, if I could just uh, <clears throat> uh, so uh, to uh, to make that transition, so the uh, after Cicero, there's the death of the Republic, but Cicero still remains highly regarded. Uh, Quintilian cites him a lot as the example to look towards. Even mm-hmm. the children of uh, Augustus were caught reading Cicero. And they were worried about it because this is the one their father killed, essentially, or, or allowed to be killed. Uh, and the story goes that uh, Augustus, uh, he said, no, it's okay. You can read Cicero uh, because he was a great Roman. Yes, he, he put the love of his country, of his city, to, uh, to give the ultimate sacrifice. And so, and yeah. so, there remains a space for rhetoric, even in in what is functionally a authoritarian system. Uh, yes, it and, still and becomes... when Augustus was was uh, was Octavius before he took on the name of the revered one, um, as a very young man, even as young as eighteen, he sought Cicero's wisdom and counsel, and frequently met with him and wrote to him about advice of what to do during the civil wars. And Cicero was very cooperative, helpful. Cicero always hoped that the Republic would be reinstated. But of course, Cicero saw Mark Antony as the real threat and that that uh, Augustus or Octavian 
would be able to counter that and that Octavian would at least listen to Cicero, which he did and respected him. Um, and so the, there is a room still in the Roman Republic for rhetoric and for education in rhetoric, and it becomes instantiated into this uh, uh, the basic skills that were essential for a Roman um, administrator, people who worked in different levels of government, uh, for generals, uh, for also performative orators that were supposed to, you know, make speeches at festivities and so on, uh, but not they were just weren't the same. And there were stable court cases that ran through the courts, but not the same kind of deliberative oratory in the Senate uh, that actually had power to overthrow the emperor. Right. And I think um, if we go through some of the important features of Quintilian's work, we'll get a sense of that. We'll see what he does and how he uh, tries to prepare. I want to mention, this may be a good time before we start, that there will be a volume coming out from Oxford University Press. I know it will go into production in January of 2021. And maybe out as early as later that year on Quintilian. And it is a collection of authors from across the world who will be talking about Quintilian. My own particular contribution chapter is on the Greek influences of Quintilian, because we often think of Quintilian solely as a Roman contributor, and he is that of course, but he was like Cicero, very heavily influenced by Greek rhetoric. We just don't think of it that often, so I tried to discuss discuss that. And Quintilian has once again, I think, come back into attention in the United States. I'm sure this is true around the world. We feel that we have real issues in our own education. And there has been work citing even today the benefits <clears throat> of instantiating what Quintilian wrote into our own curricula. Uh, I wrote a small essay called Quintilian's Message Again. And the reason I did that title was because there was a president of a, what was then the Speech Communication Association urging in the beginning decades of the 20th century, a concern for education and returning to Quintilian and then in the beginning of the 21st century, I thought that that message, Quintilian's message, should be reviewed again. And I think the reason why, of course, all of these come out of the institutes, and I'll try to give a general sense of where they occur, but they're more or less sequential. In other words, they follow the 12 books. Mm. But, the, but the overall part is that Quintilian believes that the rhetor should have a kind of a moral philosophy that there should be an ethical grounding to this weird bonus, this good person, should be the ethical grounding of all rhetoric and should be instantiated very early on. For example, Quintilian argues that a child's nurse or early teacher must be morally responsible, not just teach it, but that the, that the nurse or the early pre-education teacher should him or herself 
embody be a person of high moral repute. Because indirectly, Quintilian argued, as well as the lessons learned, that notion of character is a model, and that model should begin immediately. So Quintilian has a very strong view on, you could see right from early childhood. And in fact, if you read the first book of Quintilian's Institutes, it sounds like a modern treatise on early childhood education. It's remarkable. As you said, Quintilian did not believe in corporal punishment, children, which was um, a view that doesn't represent his time where abusive punishment was not uncommon. Uh, he Not just abusive he punishment, believed, to the, there were parents sometimes to kill the children for being disobedient. It was. Well, you know, they, the Romans thought of, I know they, they are children to us, but they, the Roman notion of children was not the same as ours. They thought of them more as like little people. And of course, they, you know, the parents had a natural love for their children, but it was a somewhat different perspective. Remember the word infant, which infant means incapable of speech. And so they thought of infants. So speech becomes central to the growth and development of these, of these children. Um, Quintilian believed also that children should begin to learn a foreign language as early as possible. And that actually the attention to the foreign language should dominate at an early age over the attention of their normal natural languages, which he believed would come and could be more easily refined over time. But as we view, as we think today, children have a capacity to learn a foreign language that appears to be much easier than adults who would learn a second language later in life. And in fact, Romans would often have nurses, for example, who would be Greek and would speak to the children in Greek and sometimes we get letters of complaint because the Greek wasn't refined enough. <laughs> but it's like the Victorian era where sometimes uh, children would be raised by um, a French nanny who would speak French to the children. Right, or, so, or nowadays uh, Mandarin nurses. or, or Right, or you know, and that's are, exactly the view. Quintilian would have encouraged that today. He would have said the same thing. He even believed that when we studied essays, he was a big believer in the competency of speech and writing early on. He thought that writing, like Cicero, was something that was of no greater help than, than speaking, that writing was so valuable, but that the essays should deal with moral themes. So indirectly, while they're practicing their speaking, he was a big believer in declamation, and they're writing, when they're writing essays, they should be moral essays that deal with important themes of character and issues of virtue. So while they're practicing their communication skills, they're also receiving moral lessons along the way. Now, we also see that Quintilian was a really very good historian of rhetoric. He really knew the history of rhetoric, and you'll see repeatedly, and I know I'm repeating myself, but praise of Isocrates throughout his work. 
He also, of course, along with Isocrates, praises Cicero. And we, we see that systematically at so many topics that he covers. Also, I should, before I leave this idea of education in the traditional sense, I want to mention that Quintilian has earned the love of every graduate student because he, he argued that students should not receive homework at night. They should not have to do homework at night that the night might, could be left for just resting or just enjoyment of reading literature or something that gave them pleasure, but not working at home. So he believed that the students should work during the day, but at night should be their own time and not load them up on homework. So you can almost hear the cheer go up in class <laughs> when Quintilian's views are expressed it's not surprising, and he says this in book eight, that he believes that expression should emphasize clarity, it should emphasize correction, and it should emphasize control, the three C's, clarity, correction, and control. Uh, he, discuss, he is very well versed in tropes and figures, figures of thought, figures of speech, but he does all this to show the goal of having control of language to attain this clarity and correction and control. Uh, he won't always agree with Cicero, but he will make that point and explain why. So there are some finesse issues, I guess we would say, well, he says, well, Cicero thought this, but I think this. And I, and I think that people appreciate very much the thoughtfulness and care that he has in balancing out so that he believes that ultimately his ultimate goal is to uh, to offer what is best for the student and the reader, not just to defer to the rhetoricians before him. Uh, as we mentioned, the culmination of uh, the Institutes of Oratory, Institutio Oratoria, is his quoting early on in Book 12 of the views of Cato the Elder of the good person speaking well. And that is the closing theme that Cicero, I mean, that Quintilian has lauding Cicero as a concrete example of that sort of civic leadership and I think if we take away anything from what we said with Quintilian, and as I mentioned at the beginning, it is this instantiation of virtue into civic leadership, which is so central to him. And I think that has become a point so clearly in agreement that his work endured. Now, unfortunately, in uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, Quintilian's work, except in isolated fragments, was lost. The respect of it wasn't lost, and the knowledge that it had existed wasn't lost, but the 12 works themselves as a unit were lost until the very early decades of the 15th century. When and this, there's a beautiful account in James J. Murphy's uh, work, "The Art 
of rhetoric in the Middle Ages, pardon me, the art of rhetoric in the Middle Ages, where uh, the discovery of the full text of the Institutes of Oratory was found in, uh, in really the basement of a monastery that looked more like a dungeon. And the great excitement that people had when they now had this work that they had heard about for so long were uh, tantalized by only having fragments of it and now had the complete work. And what we can do uh, in just a moment is I will talk about uh, the consequences of what happened as I begin to introduce with not just Quintilian, but rhetoric when the Roman Empire collapsed and we begin to see the beginnings of the Middle Ages. Okay, and I think that good, yeah. uh, one of the most important things for people to remember, and this may sound odd, is that where the Roman Empire had this broad, sweeping influence, what we see is after, in the 5th century Common Era, that uh, there is a distinction between what we call the Greek speaking east and the latin speaking west and rhetoric survived and thrived in both of these cultures the east and the west because of the same reasons that it had survived up to that point was that it was not an anecdotal curiosity but rather a, uh, a very important contributor to culture, education, and even religion. Mm. And so we begin to see that in different manifestations, rhetoric uh, continued. Now, one of the best statements about the continuation of rhetoric is the work of... James J. Murphy, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Rhetoric in the Middle Ages. Now, this work has been a great contribution to the history of rhetoric. I and people, and it was written in the 1970s, I believe approximately 1974 is the date that it was first, yes, first published by the University of California Press. I once heard Murphy, who is now 98 years old, asked at a conference, will there be a revision? And he said that, if I'm, I hope I'm doing justice by paraphrasing, that he thought it would be a great idea. But even since he did this work, there's been so much research that it would be too hard for him to even revise this work. Hmm. And that, of course has been the task of those scholars who are interested in medieval rhetoric and the transitions. But, but to give credit, Murphy in that book, The Art of Rhetoric in the Middle Ages, argues this. He says, out of antiquity, both Greek and Roman, there were four dominant traditions. And if I can paraphrase those right now, he said one was a kind of a philosophical orientation toward rhetoric. And that is 
the views of people we've discussed, such as Plato and Aristotle. Now, should we include Isocrates? Well, in some ways we should, because he had a kind of a philosophy. Remember Plato's early remark in the Phaedrus about something of philosophy? Yeah, about him, yeah. Right. So we, we so if we were to go back and revise in that tradition, the kind of quote philosophical tradition, we might also have not only Plato and Aristotle, but maybe Isocrates as well. He also believed that there was a sophistic tradition, that the sophists made great contributions. And indeed, one of the things that we will see later on, if we were to continue, is a is that there is a renaissance of the second sophistic, which they themselves called it. This was a kind of a rebirth of the sophistic tradition of the classical period. And uh, that tradition is another one that came out of, of antiquity. Now, should we also include Isocrates in that? Well, Isocrates did not think of himself as a sophist. He even wrote against the sophist, but yet what he did as did the sophists, is contribute toward the civic functions of the day with his rhetoric. So for the practical utility of Isocrates' views, we might consider that. The third tradition, besides the philosophical and sophistic, is the tradition that we have recently been discussing with Cicero and Quintilian. And this is a tradition, again, of uh, of, having the rhetor have a kind of a virtue, but an orientation, not so much toward individual self-gain, although that could come as a consequence, but really a primary view of service, Mm. of civic rhetoric serving. And perhaps we should include Isocrates there as well, because as both Cicero and Quintilian acknowledged, there's a great indebtedness that they owe to Isocrates for the civic orientations that develop their own rhetoric. And then the last of the four traditions was more of a uh, grammatical tradition where in antiquity they were concerned with the orthography and philological issues of the language. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a wealth of work on that kind of grammar. Now, those four traditions modified were evolved into what Murphy calls in his work, the three medieval rhetorical genres or arts. And one was ars poetriae, which is this idea of prescriptive grammar. And by script prescriptive people saying, this is the correct pronunciation. This is how you ought to write. This is what, and, and, and verse writing, just understanding how the compositional features of not just poetry, but writing. Right. The third, the second of the three genres in the Middle Ages that transformed from those four traditions of antiquity is ours dictaminus, and that is the art of letter writing. And the principles come from rhetoric, and they come often from Cicero. Most of Cicero's works, as we mentioned in an earlier discussion, were lost to medieval scholars, except De Inventioni, which he wrote earlier, and later, in one of his later works, De Oratore, asked readers to dismiss as the writings of a young schoolboy. But 
they did survive, but they were very helpful despite Cicero's self-criticism. And they became the principles of the art of letter writing. And then the third rhetorical tradition of the Middle Ages, we might think of in some ways as new, but it was again drawn from principles of antiquity. And that is ours pray de conde are the art of preaching. Right. The art of of presenting a sermon, as we know that in the liturgical functions of the homily, the, church, the, homily, the pastoral, the yeah. exactly there would be you know these moments where sermons would be given, and the principles of doing that well came from antiquity. We can thank Saint Augustine for overcoming the criticisms of his colleagues that we should not take anything from this these pagan cultures. And St. Augustine believed that if we could strip out the pagan content and look at the process, as he argued in book four of his own work, De Doctrina Christiana, that we would see principles that would be very important for our own Christian views, and especially ours pray to Kandai, the art of preaching. And just as a side there from the, uh, in um, uh, Kennedy's, um, the, uh, um, classical rhetoric and its uh, Christian uh, and secular tradition, mm-hmm. tradition, uh, secular tradition. The uh, he uh, talks about how uh, uh, many of the church fathers or kind of the early church fathers that became influential were rhetoricians before they became bishops or le- or or leaders uh, in different ways. Um, and Saint Augustine also was one of those. He was a rhetorician before he became a, a full convert, you could say. Um, and uh, St. Jerome, who would, I believe uh, translated the uh, Bible into uh, Latin, the Vulgate Bible, um, yes. he had this uh, dream where he uh, went to to heaven uh, and was asked by uh, St. Peter, I believe, or, or by God, uh, whether he was a follower of Christ, whether he was a Christian. And uh, he said, uh, yes. And then they, they said, no, we can see through you. You're a Ciceronian. You're a follower of Cicero. You're not a follower of Christ. <laughs> so he felt, he felt tempted to, when he wanted to read his Bible, he, want, he then felt tempted to read Cicero instead. <laughs> and I think that was their torment, is that they received their education from the fruits of antiquity. But because it was in their minds, pagan that they thought that this was somehow being um, hypocritical to their faith but I maybe a physical analogy would be this I just as uh, an example many of uh, some of the ancient buildings even in Rome in the forum the Senate house survived because Christians transformed that building into a church. So we have it because they uh, they saw another function for it. And in some ways that happened to rhetoric. Now it's also true, and there's been an, ar- an article, arguments about this, that in the Vatican, not one piece of stone um, comes from anywhere other than ancient sources that were recut or reinserted into what we have today. So there's also this argument that ancient 
artifacts were literally disassembled. So I realized that. But if you think of the church example, the, the strength of rhetoric is that its benefits are so powerful, so obvious, that it would be foolish to not recognize it. And today, our own education, and this is, I think, why Quintilian is so popular again, is that we, we think we have lost a kind of moral vector in education. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful contributions of what we call in America STEM education. I'm sure that's a term that's used internationally. But along with those, uh, we need to have a grounding in, in virtue and commitment and social responsibility that doesn't give self-interest the highest priority. Mm. And Quintilian helps us to ground our education in a systematic way. And I think that uh, it has become such a problem in America that we started looking for answers and found many of them in the works of Quintilian. And the, uh, uh, it also explains why he was a, a popular source also in the Christian era. Um, the, one of the challenges that these Christian writers had with, with Cicero, for example, or for some of the uh, Athenian orators was that there was this sense of combativeness uh, about the rhetoric, right? There's this, mm-hmm. uh, that was, there was something in, in rhetoric that was somehow warlike, not peaceable. Uh, that was uh, there was a certain enmity sometimes in the way that the rhetoric and the this this combativeness it was a, a form of wrestling you could say um, right and um, Quintilian uh, where it was he does prepare people for defending and prosecuting in court cases um, he also talks about integrates rhetoric into the moral development uh, of a person just like Isocrates does really. Um, and uh, in a way that is uh, fundamentally beneficial to the state and, and to, to, uh, to peace and to civil societies. Uh, he first uh, talks about some of the attacks that was made on rhetoric. This is from the uh, uh, book three, I believe, of the Institutes of Oratory, uh, where he talks about, well, some people have said that, look, even at Athens, the orators were forbidden to move the passions, the powers of eloquence were in a manner curtailed because people saw the danger of them um, that they can be used for wrong things and he responds well under such a mode of reasoning neither will generals nor magistrates nor medicine nor even wisdom itself be of any utility for Flaminus was a general and the Gracchi, Saturnini and uh, Glusier were magistrates in the hands of physicians poisons have been found and among those who abuse the name of philosophers have been occasionally detected the most horrible crimes we must reject food for it has often given rise to ill health <laughs> we must never go under roofs for they sometimes fall upon those who dwell beneath them uh, a sword must not be forged for a soldier for a robber may use the same weapon who does not know that fire and water without which life cannot exist and that I may not confine myself to things of the earth, that the sun and the moon and the chief of the celestial luminaries sometimes produce hurtful effects? Will it be denied, however, that the blind Appius, by the force of his eloquence, broke off a dishonorable treaty of peace about to be concluded with Pyrrhus? Was not the divine eloquence of Cicero in opposition to the agrarian laws even popular? 
Did it not quell the daring of Catiline and gain in the toga the honor of the thanksgivings, the highest that is given to generals victorious in the field? Does not oratory often free the alarmed minds of soldiers from fear and persuade them when they're going to face so many perils in battle that glory is better than life? Um, and he talks about that uh, even the very rules for the conduct of life, beautiful as they are by nature, have yet greater power in forming the mind when the radiance of eloquence illumines the beauty of the precepts. Though the weapons of eloquence therefore have effect in both directions, it is not just that we should be accounted an evil, which may use uh, t- which we may use to a g- what we may use to a good purpose. But these points may perhaps be left to the consideration of those who think that the substance of eloquence lies in the power to persuade. But if eloquence be the art of speaking well, the definition which I adopt, says Quintilian, so that a true orator must be above all a good man speaking well, speaking good. It must assuredly be acknowledged that it is a useful art. In truth, the sovereign deity, the parent of all things, the architect of the world, has distinguished man from other beings, such at least as were to be mortal, by nothing more than the faculty of speech. And talks about, as Cicero and uh, Isocrates do, that uh, we're weaker bodily than uh, animals. We're, in all ways, we're... we're, uh, more feeble than them in many ways. Uh, But the divinity has therefore given us reason superior to all other qualities and appointed to us to be the sharers of it with the immortal gods. But reason could neither neither profit us so much nor manifest itself so plainly within us if we could not express by speech what we have conceived in our minds, a faculty which we see wanting in other animals far more than, to a certain degree, understanding and reflection. Or to contrive habitation, to construct nests, to bring up their young, to hatch them, to lay up provision for the winter, to produce works inimitable by us, uh, as those of wax and honey, is perhaps a proof of some portion of reason. But as though they do such things, they are without the faculty of speech, they are called dumb and irrational. Uh, Even to men to whom speech has been denied, of how little avail is divine reason. If therefore we have received from the gods nothing more valuable than speech, what can consider can we consider more deserving of cultivation and exercise? Or in what can we more strongly desire to be superior to other men than in that by which man himself is superior to animals? Um, this will be so much more evident if we reflect from what origin and to what extent the art of eloquence has advanced and how far it may still be improved. For not to mention how beneficial it is and how becoming in a man of virtue to defend his friends, to direct a senate or people by his counsels, or to lead an army to whatever enterprise may be desired, it is not extreme. <coughs> is it not extremely honorable to attain by the common understanding of words which all men use so high a degree of esteem and glory as to appear not to speak or plead, but as with the case of Pericles, to hurl forth lightning and thunder? <laughs> I think uh, what we can take from that is really a better understanding of what happened in the 20th century with the emergence of what has been called new rhetorics, that the traditional rhetoric was characterized, and as you can see from the passage that you just read from Quintilian, perhaps unfairly in the sense of its limitations, as agonistic or combative. 
But there's also an argument that rhetoric is ironic or peaceful, that it is a way uh, without combat to resolve disagreement. And in the 20th century, we had theories emerge that took that to heart. For example, Rogerian rhetoric is an effort to try to use rhetoric to gain mutual understanding. Some people believe that the expansiveness of feminist rhetoric also has a view of trying to cooperate and communicate openly and with a shared understanding that participants are willing to change their mind and views through a, 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 a virtuous and just use of rhetoric. And uh, in the 20th Kenneth century, Burke, uh, to the purification of war, right? That's that uh, yeah. was all about how you know sometimes uh, how we can yeah so how we can use language to uh, to minimize or to make less harmful uh, the violence in humans to make uh, coexistence more possible. Uh, <coughs> Kenneth Burke is a great example maybe one of the best examples of the, or he is one of the best examples of the new rhetorics. Also, as we mentioned in an earlier discussion, the views of Heim Perelman and Lucy Olbrecht's Titeca in the work, The New Rhetoric, A Treatise on Argumentation, culminate in their, of their work by saying that rhetoric offers an alternative to either ambivalence, where you just don't care and let anything happen, or uh, warfare and combat where you force a view on others and, and their opinion doesn't matter, but it, but it is an alternative that allows for discussion and deliberation as a way of resolving differences for good reasons. In the early decades of the 20th century, I.A. Richards in his lectures at Bryn Mawr they were later published under the title The Philosophy of Rhetoric, believes that rhetoric should shift its emphasis away from persuasion in the sense of this agonistic view to one that seeks mutual understanding and uses rhetoric for that ends. So the spectrum of rhetoric that was, I think, evident in the four traditions that we discussed coming out of antiquity, was transformed in the Middle Ages to the three medieval arts. But now, in today, with the new rhetorics, we can see the spectrum enlarging. And our very exciting era is looking at areas of comparative rhetorics, of seeing how cultures grow and use rhetoric as a way of attaining their ends but I believe, as Quintilian revealed in the passage that you just read, the value of history and learning from the best minds and seeing all that rhetoric can be and continue to be, and maybe even ways that Quintilian, Quintilian himself might not ever have imagined. And this, I think, is the reason why education and rhetoric are going to be uh, very closely discussed in harmony today and in the future. Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, another one we could uh, mention there is also just uh, as uh, who gives a reasoning for this uh, 
uh, uh, Wayne Booth. Yes. yes, we have. And I think uh, that's why uh, these great minds of the 20th century came to revision rhetoric. In other words, not because it had not received the attention that it should have and um, had gotten to the point where it was just seen for its structural features and not for this sort of virtuous philosophy that can be so beneficial in higher education. And that was the exciting discoveries that we've listed, including, of course, Wayne Booth from the University of Chicago in the 20th century, and how in the 21st century, we're now trying to re-envision higher education and see rhetoric. But I also want to mention is that in the um, early decades of the 2000s, I was asked to work on um, instantiating, recommending uh, the education, not just higher education, but prep preparing for that in the middle uh, school era or period and then in the high school area. And in that, we talked about how the culmination to prepare for success should be the study of rhetoric in lower education, not just in college and university life as Quintilian mentioned in his own works, right from early childhood education. I guess the uh, the quote for that's uh, from uh, Wayne Booth is that if uh, reasoning together we cannot ever produce justified changes of mind, uh, what means do we have to influence each other, right? I can only trick you or blackmail you and manipulate you or, or shoot you and thereby change your mind permanently, right? Let's see, yeah. see how you go to... We need... In a democratic society, we need to live together somehow. And uh, there has to be a space and a place for justified changes of mind where we can agree upon certain things and certain policies, certain civic institutions. And if we do aren't able to, if the, we don't create an, any space for that, uh, then the road to violence is wide open. I, when I teach, a, <clears throat> excuse me, when I used to teach a class, in propaganda analysis and persuasion. And this isn't my idea. I don't want to take credit for it, but I used to say that one of the, one of the features of the propagandist is that he or she would never want the tricks that they use to get you to agree to be used to back on them. Mm. But a virtuous rhetoric opens up and would want the same process that they use to be used back at them as a way of mutually coming to an understanding, not just to convince you of my position or for you to convince me of your position, but that together we can arrive at the best position. And that's why also the, uh, the methods of propaganda um, and the way that they're instantiated, they function so well with the one way, right? It's, uh, yes. They say that the, the radio was made for propaganda. There's no... You know, the, the listener doesn't speak back. Now they do a little bit with the radio shows, you know, where you can phone in. But but it's it's a one-way thing versus yes. a public meeting where the audience can respond, uh, where a counter voice can arise. Um, and uh, the same goes in many ways, for example, for television. But wherever there's a one-way street, one-way communication, 
and you can just uh, increase the gains by by flooding the zone with a black and white picture of of the world, right? And there's no one who's able to to uh, sow doubts or criticize that that point of view. That is the dream scenario for the propagandist and the the nightmare scenario for the for the persuader, you could say. And one of the great contributions of the 20th century was the work of um, the philosopher Henry W. Johnstone Jr., who taught at Pennsylvania State University, and he wrote an essay called From Philosophy to Rhetoric and Back, and he talked about exactly what you said, David, is that rhetoric is best used and understood as not a one-way street, but a two-way street, that it goes you know, in both directions and can be used by both parties. And he saw this in philosophy, hence the title, because philosophers argue for their philosophical views, and that argument, at its very nature, to the philosophical arguments of their very nature, is rhetorical. There's uh, a... Um... There's a quote, uh, a quote uh, from uh, Perlman where uh, he talks about uh, he talks a lot about the, uh, the difference between in some ways the difference between rhetoric and manipulation um, and uh, there's this quote that he uses that it's not from him but he found it and uh, I think it's very uh, very good um, but it, it talks about that uh, the uh, we just find it here. The um, yeah. So first, Kenneth Burke says persuasion involves choice, will. It is directed to a man only in so far as he is free. And uh, Perlman and Olbrich's Tateka write that the use of argumentation implies that one has renounced resorting to force alone. That value is attached to gaining the adherence of one's interlocutor by means of reasoned persuasion and that one is not regarding him as an object, but appealing to his or her free, free judgment. Recourse to argumentation assumes the establishment of a community of minds which, while it lasts, excludes the use of violence. To agree to discussion means readiness to see things from the viewpoint of the interlocutor, to restrict oneself to what he admits or she admits, and to give effect to one's own beliefs only to the extent that the person one is trying to persuade is willing to his assent to them. To give his assent to them. So as Dupriel writes in this, is, uh, every justification is essentially a moderating, a, a moderating act, a step towards greater communion of heart and mind. I think if we put those two views, the one you just said, next to the quotations that you, the passages that you read earlier from Quintilian, we will see a beautiful harmony in thought, that they agree about the vision of what rhetoric is and what it can be and what it can contribute. And I think that is a, a very, very clear and good way to synthesize what we have been discussing over the last several uh, meetings. So to uh, should we do a, a little bit of a try to do a little bit of an overview as uh, far as so where we kind of started and where we end up and what uh, yeah what uh, the journey we've taken. 
Well, I think we started by showing that as early in antiquity as the classical period, we began to see that the formalized study of rhetoric as a discipline, as an art, as a technique, was done because they recognized the social utility of uh, that it offered to the citizens as well as the state, and that having leaders who could articulate well their thoughts and sentiments was a tremendous benefit. This was recognized uh, also in Rome, especially during the Republic, and it became so clear that by the end of the Republic and into the transition into the empire, rhetoric became an inherent feature of education. And when the empire did uh, fall and the Middle Ages arise, versions of rhetoric that survived were, even in those versions, were seen as beneficial under a Christian culture in Europe and were appropriated and the benefits endured for a long time um, until the certainly in the Renaissance where education and rhetoric were still important parts. But now there was the rediscovery of the classical works that had been lost for so long. And we can see that through the efforts of important patrons such as the Medici in Florence and uh, how that understanding of rhetoric uh, would become a part of the Renaissance, that that did wane with the rise of the study of science. But we saw that rejuvenation again uh, as early as the early decades of the 20th century when we realized that education should include a moral vector and the ability to share through argument and discussion and agreement questions of value and preference and that there was a system to do this. And that system is revealed in the history of rhetoric. Hence, the, as we talked about the new rhetorics of the 20th century. And today, with our current concerns of education, we are continuing to see manifestations of a spectrum of rhetoric and how rhetoric can be beneficial in helping to, to educate people to become effective leaders and resolve problems in ways that don't involve um, combat and uh, and really forceful aggression. So, um, I guess the little bit of the question is: uh, if we look at the last two thousand years, um, most of it rhetoric was at the very heart of the humanistic project, you could say, or the uh, the humanities or the education, the edu- the um, the building up or development of a uh, uh, of a citizen, right? Uh, yeah. e- even in times of you know where nominally dictatorships, but um, to what? I mean, so we and we have it also in the Enlightenment. I mean, Francis Bacon was a great rhetorician in some ways. Uh, was talking a lot about how to make good arguments. Um, Jeremy Bentham, we have uh, he tries to kind of uh, clean language from uh, any kind of emotional undertones and wants to make kind of a more scientific uh, vocabulary. Um, you, uh, it's, as far as like for at universities, um, we do see a little bit of the decline of rhetoric with the rise of the kind of the Humboldtian university, right, where um, mm-hmm. all the language languages are supposed to be. Uh, 
all language teaching is supposed to be confined in research uh, areas. And you mm-hmm. see the rise of philology, linguistics, and literature as kind of the three language sciences and rhetoric is thrown out um, during uh, during some of that period as kind of a lower order matter, something that that doesn't um, that doesn't quite fit or didn't quite fit in those conceptions of the research university perhaps mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'd say also logical positivism to a certain extent right the the idea of making humans into these rational computers uh, where any kind of arguments about value preference emotion uh, doesn't or for many didn't deserve a place right right i think that what what uh, has happened in the 20th century and is still happening into the 21st century is a re-examination of the mission and vision of universities and their role in society in terms of higher education and i think what we have seen is that there are two at least two important components one is the germanic model of universities as research centers and their contributions to society through research the other is more the oxford cambridge model of training individuals, education taking dominance. That's not at, not to underscore what contributions were made in research from those universities, but also, but essentially training the leaders of the society. And what we see now in the mission and vision statements of universities across the world is an attention to do both that these aren't an either or um, situation, that we can contribute toward valuable research in science and in humanities, and also train scientists and uh, humanists to train all students in the moral responsibilities of their education. And so the nice and happy consequence is that there is a new synthesis going on where it's no longer an either or but a both and so the um, perhaps an overcorrection towards trying to make every discipline scientific in the sense that there the had to be uh, uh, that there wasn't uh, you could say in, there's a kind of a new turn to rhetoric in the political sciences, for example, in a lot of the humanities, uh, in history writing, uh, which had become, uh, to, certain, to a certain extent, uh, focused only on the empirical data and not on the kind of the work of history that is. You do have to construct a narrative and you do make choices and there has to be a good way of doing that and there has to be some guidelines to doing that, that history writing is, to a certain extent, an art, not just a science. Yes. You know, we, uh, in America, we used to have, uh, in the early decades and even, well, even earlier than that, but, but essentially in the early decades of, uh, of the 20th century, we would have, uh, educate, we would have medicine 
uh, buildings that were medical buildings that were seen as having an applications of their science that and it would be they would be called believe it or not the medical arts and the reason they were called the medical art is that it is the enacting of medicine into the practical benefits of helping people recover from illness or sustaining their wellness and so science and we see this today of course with covid-19 there is a moral choice to give priority toward a vaccine which will combat this horrible virus and that is a rhetorical choice we have agreement of priority that our research efforts and energies in science should be devoted notice the should ought the value toward helping people in this terrible situation and what rhetoric offers is a systematic way of doing that it offers a ratio remember if we go back to the word irrational we think that it is something that doesn't have a ratio does not have a system it's helter skelter and we have made a systematic choice through discussion and debate of our priorities and how to apply hence the art or craft of science to uh the social needs of today in combating covid-19 and so, um so they, they just uh, put also a little bit the kind of larger perspective of what kind of civic um, values are inherent in in rhetoric um, because there's a difference between the there's a reason why it was why these systems were made and it's not just simple like for example PR or how to spin a story or so on um, it's uh, you see, you see from the very beginning with Isocrates and also with Quintilian and throughout um, that there is a desire to lead people by persuasion. That uh, rather than trying to gather an army and force people to agree with you, uh, you do try to and not overwhelm them by the force of persuasion. Sometimes you talk about persuasion as a force. It's, it's, it doesn't quite work that way. Someone can be a very, very slick speaker or, or use all kind of uh, argumentative strategies. It doesn't guarantee that they'll have people agree with them. Um, but that you try to articulate your way in the most persuasive way possible that you use every means possible to try to understand what's going on in that other person's mind, how they're thinking, and how you can unite your life world in some ways, find the overlap in your life world and their life world, uh, so that they are on the same page, so that they can agree to this project, this uh, civic project, to instantiate these institutions in society, to let's organize that... Uh, community party <laughs> let's uh, that street party uh let's uh let's agree on these things let's do things together i can't do it on my own uh let's come together let's do this this is something that's worth it that's uh that's worth uh the the work and the effort and the um and the passion for it uh and uh that there's value that you put on being able to lead them that way rather than saying 
I have a higher social status than you. I'm richer than you. I'm more powerful than you. Um, uh, or finding other ways to gain advantage over the person. Instead, you invite them forcefully by every means that you have, the nonviolently, uh, to to join, to come to your on, on your side, or to at least find common ground. I think rhetoric, to put it, maybe in in a way that sounds too simple. Rhetoric can facilitate partnerships. It can convince people of the benefits of working and sharing together for a common good. And we've seen this even in private corporations who are working, for example, to have develop a vaccine with COVID against COVID-19 to be able to share their findings and cooperate together for the greater good. And that is a rhetorical perspective. It is a conscious choice. It is a deliberate choice. And it is a beneficial choice. I, I think at the end of the day, and like I realize this is perhaps overly simplistic, any normal, rational person would see that as inherently superior to, the, to its opposite. You know, a self-interested, isolated, um, effort that doesn't share in something that could be beneficial to others, but takes a, a, a self-centered approach for their own personal gain. And that uh, exposing those views will realize the inherent benefits of partnership and cooperation. And it's a, for many people, a more challenging way to live because it does mean that uh, things can be challenged uh, that uh, there will be change there will be need to to defend to to uh, certain to, to way to to argue um, to reason uh, and to negotiate uh, you know to yes. a certain extent almost constantly right in society uh, what are our priorities what are our goals what are our aims um, but it is you know, it 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 is the it is the way to live in a democratic society, uh, and it is, uh, I think, uh, inherently empowering to be part of a process like that, even if you don't win out in the end. Yeah, and I, and I think we have much to thank from the individuals that we discussed in antiquity who came to realize that, and the importance of that perspective on civic leadership which entails within it the idea, as you've discussed, of negotiation and partnership and cooperation. And when it comes to leadership, you know, uh, management theory, some of it does instantiate kind of psychological manipulation tactics and so on. Uh, I think the best leader would be one that uh, is able to to lead by persuasion. Uh, and if they're not, if they're not able to convince people that they're, path forward for the company or other things are, is the right one, is the best one, uh, maybe be willing to change their stance. Yes, and, and we've learned many lessons out of World War II about the importance of not only the power of effective rhetoric, but the responsibility to use it uh, for the greater good and what the horrific consequences can be when it's abused and misused. And when there's no counter voices, right? 
Yes, and and when counter voices are suppressed. Right. All right. Thank you. So. Uh, uh, Thank you. I've enjoyed our discussions very much. Yeah, me too. It's. Uh, I had like this sense that uh, I just needed to. Uh, for myself, uh, relive some of those classes on uh, on uh, classical rhetoric, uh, but also to uh, and have it just for myself to refer back to, but also for other people to have access to this. Um, to not everyone is able to take a doctoral course in classical rhetoric with uh, Richard Enos at, at Texas Christian University, and actually nowadays nobody is because he's retired. <laughs> so, well, I appreciate that, and I'm honored to have, for you to invite me and to have. Uh, discussions I thoroughly enjoyed over the last several weeks. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Preps. In the new year, we could do one on uh, Kyan Perelman. Uh, let's, we hope. Let's see. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens, but thank you. All right. Great. Well, thank you for joining us also for the uh, Rhetorical Leadership Podcast on Quintilian, uh, the uh, the master pedagogue and teacher. And uh, uh, for joining us all for this uh, on the masters of uh, classical or ancient uh, Greek and Roman rhetoric. Thank you. My honor. <laughs>